Well hello my friends, this is CK from the Mirths and Monsters podcast. Join me, my companion Finn, and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray Puny models. as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? Uh. Sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Mirths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, slancha your good health. time we've talked on the phone is it it is because i was too afraid to call you (laughs) (laughs) not for me for you (laughs) yeah yeah no i'm i am doing oh my god i'm doing so much better i'm doing i'm living you know a dream (laughs) (laughs) is it though it's hey sometimes nightmares can be dreams too and sometimes dreams can be great and other times they can just be a little weird. I think I'm in that last one. A little weird. A little weird. Just a little. A little bit. It's 2020. It's normal for 2020. We're almost at the end of 2020. And then what are we going to say when things are bad? Um, it's life. And then it just becomes life. life. If it's longer than 365 days, I'm afraid that's just life. Here's my thing. A friend of mine had a theory that a lot of stuff has been going wrong since we did our episode on Beelzebub. So for that, I'm sorry. I'm not taking that on. I'm not? <laughs> I'm taking that on. I, I'm the one who did that episode. And I think I put a curse on us and everyone. I refuse to give any belief to that theory because I am totally one of those superstitious people that's like, well, once you believe it, it's obviously true. Mm. So I'm, I'm not doing it. I shall mm-hmm. not. I, All right. I think. I won't make that joke. I won't plant the seed in your mind. Oh, it's planted, baby. But, you know, listen, I also did a story on Lilith, who has a lot against everyone in that entire pantheon, and I feel like yeah. she would have my back. That's that's my she would. seed. And, and to be fair, things were going wrong in the world far, far before the Beelzebub episode. I'm actually having a moment about the world where I am mad at every single person person because I feel like everyone's not upholding their end of the social contract. Like, if I pay you for a thing, then just give me that thing or apologize and then give me the thing or I'll just give you my money back. Like, those are the options. Or if you say you're going to be somewhere, don't cancel being in that place an hour before. Mm. Or don't pull out into moving traffic when it's not your turn. Or don't text and drive. Or a myriad of things. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, one, I mean, first of all, super valid. Um, Two, I think, like, we're so much more hypersensitive to that now. Three, I've been joking recently that I have exactly two personality traits. It is that I'm obsessed with, like, trying to get a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. And then I'm always on time. 
Mm-hmm. So, like, as someone whose sole personality consists of being on time and trying to sleep, I really, really, really relate to your sentiment. Hmm. That's funny because I've been thinking one of my major personality traits is uh, I need to know what direction I'm going. Even if I'm failing, I have to be failing forward. So you don't mean cardinal directions. You mean like direction in life? No, yes. I mean like purpose. I mean greater direction. Because when people move the finish line, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. No. <laughs> Yours is so, so grand and like such a, a good way to think about your life. And I'm like, I'm on time. That's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're also, I would say, indestructible. So that's, Aww, you know, we're going to add My name that. literally means little fighter. So I appreciate that. That's why I got my name. Fun fact, everyone. I was named Tracy because it means little fighter. And I was very tiny when I was born. Yeah, basically, the history of Tracy is a (laughs) a lineage of her going, I'm going to do this, and uh, biology going, maybe not, and her saying, I'm doing it anyway, (laughs) and everyone has to get on board. Yeah, biology's like, well, I mean, fine. It's going to go okay. (laughs) Me going, good enough, thank you. (laughs) All right, on that note, we are the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. And Tracy Harrison is back with me. Hold your applause. Hold your tears. Yes. I won't. Um, I'm going to clap and cry. We'll just edit it out. Uh, (laughs) I am back. Uh, But before I say anything else, I want to say a huge thank you to Casey. She filled in for me super last minute while I was away. She's an amazing lady, a we have talked about her on the podcast multiple times mm-hmm. before she showed up as a person you all now know and love. Um, and I'm just so grateful to her for doing that because um, I had a non-COVID-related medical issue that is clearing up and good to go. I'm back on the road to full recovery. I'm feeling great. I am happy. And um, thank you just to everyone for all your kind words and support. It meant the world. You all didn't get to know this in the last episode, but Casey jumped on to helping us and immediately was live texting me and Tracy about the Winchester Mystery House with Mm -hmm. so many exclamation points. She went to town on the research. My shoulders dropped about five inches. I know Tracy Mm -hmm. went from texting in all caps to just normal texting. (laughs) Yes. Yep. (laughs) I was, I, I, yeah, I... My favorite is when uh, Casey texted me to say that she was so angry about how history did Sarah Winchester (laughs) wrong that she called her own mother to rant about it for half an hour. Mm. And I was like, you know, I don't have to worry about the podcast anymore. It is in great hands. That is strong podcast energy. Oh, yeah. That and um, her her roommate had to talk her out of writing her story from the point of view of a nail in a board in the house. But why, though? That is also I said the same thing. really strong willing and fable energy. I said the same thing. I, sa- I was like, you have no idea how in line that is with our energy. But she ended up going in a different direction that I think was, was equally valid. Didn't I text you a few weeks ago going, I'm going to write the story from the point of view of an inanimate object. And then hours later, in the middle of the night, I went, nope, I changed my mind. Yes. <laughs> oh, Casey, we love you. And I truly think that... One of the most 
wonderful qualities a human being can have that just draws people in is enthusiasm. And Casey Mm -hmm. is one of the most enthusiastic, supportive people I've ever known. And it was really wonderful to have a super long video call with her because the serotonin I got... Uh, yes carried me for days (laughs) oh my god and can you imagine she's also so you've now met my two dungeon masters everyone (laughs) tim and casey (laughs) um so just imagine that energy as your dungeon master and you can just picture the hilarious fun we have nonstop in those sessions so huge thank you to casey we love and adore you come back soon (laughs) (laughs) but you know with maybe all of us together um happy i was thinking i'd take a week off oh you'll take a break (laughs) i'll be convalescing in a sanatorium sanitarium yeah 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 sanitarium by the sea where the fresh salty air can heal your Mm -hmm. what do you want tuberculosis because that's like the pretty one yeah it is the pretty one and i i want a long flowing robe obviously obviously so Speaking of flowing gowns and tuberculosis. Good, good. Yes. (laughs) It's vampire time. Tracy, Tracy, A plus work. Good effort. Thank you so much for introducing that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, we've had truly worse transitions. So in my book, we're, uh, we're only improving. We're moving forward, rolling along. And speaking of moving forward... Happy Halloween, everyone. This is the last episode in our spooky season series. Next, we are so excited to announce that White Light Productions, a jewelry company, is going to be sponsoring a three-episode arc titled Stories from the Sea. We're going to be telling you all sorts of oceanic tales, including one of my favorite stories in the entire world, but I will not give anything away. For now... It's still spooky season, (laughs) so grab your garlic, pick up a steak, and let's talk about those fanged creatures that lurk in the dark. Tracy, if you don't call me out on that transition, we're not friends anymore. Rowan, that was such a good transition. Thank you. That was amazing. (laughs) Beautiful. Iconic. (laughs) Impressive. Glowing. Amazing. Stunning. Breathtaking. Have I said that one yet? Convalescing Uh, in a sanatorium. (laughs) Now, Rowan, I guess you're sitting there wondering, what are the main characteristics of a vampire? What are they? Oh, great question. So the main characteristic of vampires is that they drink blood in order to survive. They typically do this with their long fangs buried into the victim's necks. These creatures can range from terrifying and hideous to sparkly and brooding. Some have super strength, hypnotic abilities, and the inability to see themselves in a mirror. The threat of vampires waxed and waned throughout history, becoming more popular in the Middle Ages when the plague would leave victims with bleeding mouths, obviously indicating that they were suffering from vampirism. In the 1800s, when tuberculosis was rampant across the world, many turned once again to vampires as the cause. Some families, after exhuming their loved ones, were met by a terrifying sight, Among the growing signs of decay, some of their hair and fingernails had grown even in death. 
This must mean they were living some sort of half-life, cursed to feed on mortals and thus leaving their graves at night in order to hunt the living. And then there's the case of Mary Brown in 1800s New England. She didn't display any signs of decay at all. This was more likely due to her being buried above ground in the New England winter than with her being a vampire. But still, the townsfolk accused her of being a vampire, and they thought she caused the sickness that was running rampant throughout the rest of the town. So they had Mary Brown exhumed, deemed a vampire, then had her heart cut out, burned, and the ashes fed to her sick brother. In order to, I can only assume, cure him, but it didn't work. Tracy, be honest with me. You ate the ashes of a vampire's heart to be able to record this podcast today and be healthy. Listen, I have one trick up my sleeve, and I don't need you giving it away. (laughs) All right, fine, we won't talk about it. (laughs) I gotta circle back, actually, because... It really bothers me that so many people today are taught the myth that a person's fingernails and hair do keep growing after death. So I spoke to my amazing friend, Amber. I am so excited about this because this is something I like went on a deep dive years ago into. Um, so Rowan, please share knowledge. I'm so excited. This is this is so interesting. So my friend Amber has eight years of experience building and running a funeral home, and she currently owns and operates Greystoke Media, where she is a business developer for death doulas and family funeral homes. Truly, she is the most beautiful, spooky queen, and she puts up with me texting her questions about dead bodies in the middle of the night. So we adore her. (laughs) Yes, we love her. Thank you. (laughs) Amber taught me this. The reason a corpse might appear to have longer nails than they did when they passed is actually because of the decomposition process. As a body dehydrates, the tissues that depend on that moisture to maintain their shape dry and shrink, while the already dry keratin proteins of hair and nails are more or less unaffected. The pulling away of this skin from hair and nails is what creates the appearance of such things growing. While embalming a body, the process of removing the natural fluids and replacing them with alcohol causes dehydration, so a mortician will use lotion to keep the skin soft and moisturized. Wear face cream, everyone. Also make friends with someone who works in death care. (laughs) Two excellent pieces of advice that I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, I actually only knew part of that. I did know that it wasn't that your nails and hair were growing, but that the skin was shrinking. But I had no idea about morticians using lotion on bodies to to make the skin soft and moisturize, which makes sense when you think about it. But uh, I I just didn't think about it. She has taught me so much about the death care industry and how if people want to funerals do not have to look like the traditional embalming process open casket that we see on media there are a lot of different options i didn't even know death doulas existed until she told me about them 
I'm guessing it's someone whose job is to just help the family through that end-of-life process, the same way that a traditional doula is only there for the mother in birth. Like, where a midwife is meant to help deliver mm -hmm. the baby, the doula's job is solely to be the advocate for the mother. From what I understand, a death doula can also get involved when a person is dying as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's awesome. She's awesome. Also, her makeup is always impeccable. And I don't think I, there's I have no reason to think that this would be something that she would have done. But I can only imagine that if she ever did the makeup for an open casket, that that human looked just stunning. Well, yeah, because she taught me everything I know about contouring. So we love good makeup game. We love <laughs> knowing someone who works in death care who is more than willing to teach us things. If anything that you just heard made you feel a little squeamish, a little, little unsettled, um, it's not going to get less gruesome from here. So listener warning, this is going to be a very fun episode, but we are not shying away from the topic of vampirism. Tracy, let me actually read the trigger warning quote that I found when I was doing my research. Ooh, Okay. This is a quote from rejectedprincesses.com, and it has to do with my story. Quote, first off, trigger warnings. All of the trigger warnings. No trigger unwarned. Okay, fine. It's actually just triggers for gore, violence, rape, incest, and murder. I think that's it, but um, tread lightly regardless. End quote. All right, here, I'm going to vamp for just a moment. While all those people that need to pause do so by saying that I just discovered rejectedprincesses.com during my research for this episode. Tracy, this website is great. And there is a book by the creator, Jason Porath, called Rejected Princesses, Illustrated Tales of History's Boldest Heroines, Hellions, and Heretics. I want the hardcover of this book so bad I, I like don't even have words for it I almost in the middle of the night ordered more than one do I need more than one no <laughs> yes one for each bookshelf one for each hand just reading separate <laughs> there you go one no what you need is three you need one for each hand and then you can sit with your knees up in bed and have one on your knees <laughs> yes, for a different page so, on each one. Mm -hmm. I want to say, though, if anyone who's listening has a kid in their life who's going through the tutu sparkly crown phase, that you should definitely support your local bookstore and buy this book because it is so cool to let people be enthusiastic about princesses if they want to and also teach them about fierce real-life women. Mm-hmm. Okay, now everybody, we've vamped for a minute. So if you're still here, you haven't skipped or dipped, we're going to assume that it's because you really want to be here. Mm-hmm. It's going to get spooky. It's going to get gross. It's going to get so fun. But this is your warning. All right. Thanks for sticking <laughs> around. We're proud of you. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Hey. Time for... Hey, oh, my gosh. You're, you're so you're, brave. You're so strong and brave. And honestly, you are also glowing. I don't know how you're managing it. Happy Halloween. Look at you. <sighs> Yeah, just thriving in that spooky season. Skippers, get out! <laughs>
no, we, you know, skippers, you can come back. It's fine. We'll take, we'll take anyone and everyone. <laughs> We're not picky. <laughs> Tracy, what the heck is your story? All right. My story this week is about one of the most famous real life vampires that existed. He is the namesake for the most famous vampire. I am talking about Vlad the Impaler. Ooh. <laughs> okay, so few names are more synonymous with vampires than that of Dracula, the creature created by Bram Stoker in 1897. And while Dracula himself may be a fictional creature, the inspiration for him was a very real person. Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, son of Vlad Dracul, or as he is most famously known today, Vlad the Impaler. Unfortunately, Bram Stoker's Dracula and our Vlad guy who loves sticks only share two things in common. A name and the general location of where they lived. However, that doesn't make Vlad the Pokey any less interesting <laughs> or important to history and the future creation of the vampire mythology that we know today. Were it not for the 1820 book by William Wilkinson, succinctly titled An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia with Various Political Observations Relating to Them. Yeah, that's the title. Were it not for that book, Vlad the Impaler may have been nothing more than a brief historical footnote. Instead, Bram Stoker found the book after visiting Vlad's homeland and went on to create one of the most famous characters in horror to this day. Dracula. Before we jump into Vlad's life story, I want to let you know that uh, there's a lot of Vlad's involved here. I'll do my best to make it clear which Vlad I'm referring to at the moment, but there weren't a ton of creative names for eldest sons, and it might get confusing between all the different Vladdy boys. Wait, all the oldest sons are just named Vlad? So there's, there's mostly there's three Vlads, and I'll, I'll preface it now when we go in, and then I'll be clear as we go through. So Vlad II is the father of our boy, Vlad III, and another guy is going to come into the picture named Vladislav. This is like when we were in high school and it was just Chris's and Alex's every which way. Yeah. Yes. There was a, in my freshman year of college, there were so many Alex's in our starting class that we named one of them 13 because he was the 13th and we just called him 13. <gasps> That's such a quality nickname. He hated it. I will never forgive him for hating that amazing nickname. All right. So by the end of my story... There are two things you should know about Vlad the Impaler. If nothing else, you should know that he really, really, really hated the Ottomans. And he somehow kept coming back into power despite being kicked out time and time again. <laughs> so let's get into it. Born in 1431 in Transylvania, the central region of modern-day Romania, Vlad III was the second son of Vlad Dracul. So I'm already wrong. He wasn't the eldest son. He had an older half-brother. I forgot to mention that. Um, so You're fired. it's not an eldest son thing. I'm, I'm fired. I quit. It was great knowing you all. You've been wonderful. You can't uh, quit. You're hired. <laughs> Guys, keep, keep note. That's how you get a job. That's how you do it, baby. Okay. Then we're raising your pay. Ah, oh, look at me go, you guys. This is this is being a powerful woman in the modern world. Okay. 
So, uh, Vlad III was the second son of Vlad Dracul, who became ruler of Wallachia in 1436. Vlad III's father had been inducted into a knightly order known as the Order of the Dragon by King Sigismund of Hungary, who would later become the Holy Roman Emperor. Vlad II, our Vlad's father, was given the new surname of Dracul based on the word for dragon, Drac. Thus, his son was son of Dracul, or Vlad Draculia, hence Dracula. Later on, that word became synonymous with devil, which is most likely why Bram Stoker decided to use it when he named his character Dracula. So would you say that Vlad II was like Daddy Vladdy? Daddy Vladdy! I'm so upset I didn't make that joke. Yes, he was Daddy Vladdy. Okay, so I'm going to call him Daddy Vladdy from now on while I'm differentiating between the Vlads. (laughs) Thank you for that. I got you. All right. So back to the Order of the Dragon. This group was devoted to one singular task. They wanted to destroy the Ottoman Empire. Wallachia, where Vlad and his family lived, was right between Christian Europe and the Muslim lands of the Ottoman Empire. Thus, many bloody battles were seen in his homeland. In 1442, Daddy Vladdy went to a diplomatic meeting with Sultan Murad II, and he brought along his two sons, Vlad III, our boy, and Vlad's younger brother, Radu. However, this meeting was a trap, and the three were held hostage until it was agreed that the eldest Vlad, Vladdy Dad, would leave his sons behind as a promise not to attack the Ottoman Empire and thus behave himself in the ongoing war. The two boys were actually treated pretty well for the time. They were tutored in science, philosophy, arts, horsemanship, and the art of war. And Radu took well to being held captive and eventually took the Turkish side, while his older brother Vlad never let go of the sting of being held captive. This is a hatred that would only continue to grow inside of him for the rest of his life. Five years later, 1447, Vladdy Daddy. He was overthrown as ruler of Wallachia by a local nobleman who killed him in the middle of swamps. Oof. Kind of gross, rough way to go. No. Not great. So, sorry, Vlad. Also, our Vlad's older half-brother was also killed alongside of his father in the murky waters of what is present-day Romania. So, rough way to go. Now, our Vlad is the eldest son in his family. All I can imagine is it being a really cold swamp and them not having invented waders yet. Yeah. So, you're just, you're just in it. It's, you're just in it. It's gross. You don't want to be there. Trench foot. Yeah. So, sorry, Vladdy Daddy. Rough way to go, bud. But now, we're a year after that. Our Vlad, Vlad III, is approximately 17 years old. And this is when he begins his campaign to take back Wallachia from its new ruler, Vladislav II. So it's not his dad, but it's still a Vlad. <laughs> <laughs> Our Vlad. This was painful to try to coordinate. You have no idea. So, Our Vlad is facing off with Vladislav. 
He relied on military support from the Ottoman governors, waited until Vladislav was away on a military mission, and took back his throne. But this victory would be short-lived. Vlad would be deposed after only two months when Vladislav came back and just kind of yoinked the throne right back out from under him. I gotta know, did teenagers at this time suffer from acne or puberty or any of the debilitating things that cause the great shame that keeps many a teenager trapped in a room instead of conquering countries? I think, one, I think yes. Two, I think at this point you're like, live fast, die young. We don't got much time. It's true. I got a pimple. I'm not really going to care about it because I got a guy with a sword coming at my head. Let me just dab some swamp mud on this and go. <laughs> it's good for your skin. Just add a little, a, little bit of the, a little bit of the mud there. People pay a lot of money for that now. I know times were different, but every time I read these stories and it's, you know, he was 15 and he took the throne. I, was, I always imagined what I was doing when I was 15 and it was not ruling a country. No, I was journaling what I thought were very deep thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he got yoinked. Okay. So he got the throne yoinked from under him. Now, between 1448 and 1456, there's actually very little known about Vlad's whereabouts, except we know he switched sides in the Ottoman-Hungarian conflict, and now he took up an anti-Ottoman position. In 1456, at approximately 25 years old, he was named Voivode, which is essentially the governor of Wallachia. So here is where history starts to paint the bloody picture that we know today. It is said, based on legends that circulated during his life and after his death, that Vlad knew he needed to secure this new position of power. In order to quell any conflicts that may occur among his subordinates across Wallachia, he invited hundreds of boyars, or aristocrats, to a banquet hall, and then had them all stabbed and impaled on spikes. Kind of hard to challenge his authority when you're dead. Okay, are we going to talk about the spikes, though? Because the actual impaling of the spikes is specifically horrifying. Yeah, it's not great. He really liked that. And you know what the funny thing is? Hmm. He learned that from the Ottomans. Yeah. Okay, for anyone who doesn't know the spikes, they go up the rear all the way through the whole body and... Humans don't actually die immediately from no. that. And if you're lucky, you get a nice thin spike and you'll just fall right on it and die very quickly. If you're unlucky, it will be a tapered spike. And as your body slides down from the weight of gravity, it gets split apart. Yeah. He had a lot of ways he liked to torture people. Spikes were his favorite. But if the fact that I just said he has a lot of ways he liked to torture people gives you any indication, um, he wasn't the nicest about Well, the spikes spike had the benefit of also being kind of a billboard of terror because you have all these yes. people impaled. Yes, and we will get to that. So he and he he sometimes would sometimes it would only be the head on a spike. He would decapitate you first, very kindly. Mm. Other uh, times he wouldn't. Uh, in this case, it is said that he had them stabbed first and then impaled. So, not a not a bad, not the worst way to go. Thank you. No, that's yeah. that's the good one. Yeah. So it gets worse from here. Okay. Similar stories 
to these began to circulate during Vlad's lifetime and especially after. So he quickly earned the nickname Vlad the Impaler and would only go on to just solidify that moniker. According to Professor Miller of Memorial University, in the 1460s and 1470s, just after the invention of the printing press, a lot of these stories about Vlad were circulating orally, and then they were put together by individuals in pamphlets and printed. Whether or not these stories are wholly true or significantly embellished is debatable, since many of those printing the pamphlets were hostile to Vlad III. However, there were some pamphlets from this time which tell almost the exact same gruesome stories about Vlad, leading Miller to believe that the tales are at least partially historically accurate. Some of these legends were also collected and published in a book called The Tale of Dracula, which was published in 1490 by a monk who presented Vlad as a fierce but just ruler. Interesting. Oh yeah, I'll talk about more about that. He's... He's got a fan base. Some famous examples of Vlad's love of impaling were when he impaled dozens of Saxon merchants who sided with the boyars. Another story states that a group of Ottoman envoys held an audience with Vlad and they refused to remove their turbans, citing religious customs. Vlad commended them on their commitment to the faith and promised to ensure that their turbans would remain on their heads forever. Mm. You can probably guess what he did next. It involved nails and spikes. Oh! So this was a case of nailing the turbans to their heads and then putting their heads on spikes. Oh! Yep. So that's our boy. Uh, Probably the most famous tale of him, however, is when Sultan Mehmet II, who conquered Constantinople... He invaded Wallachia in 1462 and proudly made it all the way to the capital city, only to find the city deserted. There was no one left to greet him except for the 20,000 impaled bodies of the Ottoman prisoners of war that were held in the city. Some have described this scene as a forest of impaled bodies leading up to the city, and it's said that Mehmed was so disgusted that he returned to Constantinople immediately. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have thought the city would just be burned to the ground at that. No, but uh, Vlad did have to flee. So Vlad left the city um, at that point and actually went into exile for a little bit. My brain has a hard time imagining 20,000 people during that time doing anything. Just because yeah. you don't have that. And the number fluctuates. Like, it's, it could be a hypocritical, like, it wasn't 20,000. Some have said 10,000, some have said 20,000. But it was in the thousands. Like, there were thousands of bodies lining the streets up to the city to greet Sultan Mehmed II. Oof. And um, so Vlad was actually uh, held up as a defender of the faith because he was anti- the Muslim Turkish Ottoman Empire. So even Pope Pius II was impressed with Vlad's determination to defeat the Ottomans. And Vlad was celebrated throughout Wallachia, Transylvania, and a bunch of other parts of Europe. Even today, some consider him to have been a just but harsh ruler. But I emphasize, they thought that what he did was fair, and I'll get into that a little bit later on. But shortly after impaling the prisoners of war in 1462, Like I said, Vlad was exiled to Hungary. He was unable to defeat Mehmed II. 
He was imprisoned during his time in exile for a number of years, though he still managed to marry and have two children, so well done, Vlad. It's like rich people prison. Yeah, right? So it was then that his younger brother, Radu, who had sided with the Ottomans, took over Wallachia uh, after Vlad was removed. But Radu was not supported in his rule by the people, and all I could see was that he died in 1475. Whether or not that's related to his lack of support, I couldn't tell you. But after his death, many favored the return of Vlad as the ruler. So in 1476, with a bunch of support, Vlad made his final attempt to reclaim his seat as ruler of Wallachia. And he was successful. But not for long. Because later that year, when he was in battle with the Ottomans, Vlad and some of his soldiers were ambushed, and at approximately 46 years old, Vlad the Impaler was killed. Please tell me he was impaled. In a gruesome yet almost poetic end, (laughs) Vlad's body was cut up and his head was sent to Mehmed II in a jar of preserved honey. (sighs) Mehmed II immediately took the head, placed it on a spike, and displayed (gasps) it above the city's gates. Thus, Vlad the Impaler ended his life as Vlad the Impaled. I, you delivered, Tracy. I asked for- (laughs) History delivered on that one for you. If I had just read slightly ahead, I wouldn't feel like such a fool, but oh God, Tracy, that was- Well done. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was very poetic. So the last thing is that while his place of burial is unknown, it is popular tradition to say that his remains are in the monastery of Snagov. However, excavation found no such body below the monastery, just animal bones. Another leading theory is that his remains are in the first church of the Kamana Monastery, which was not only established by Vlad, but was located near the battlefield where he was killed. So that is more likely where his body, what's left of it, is buried. I I love the real-life vampire stories. Uh, horrible people, left, right, and center, doing horrible, horrible things, but the showmanship... I know. I know. There's that that famous quote of great men are rarely good men, you know, and it's so you can see inspiration from this. It's crazy to think about all, you know, I think about I think there was a scene in Game of Thrones that was very similar to this. Joffrey had a Vlad the Impaler moment. Joffrey did, but Daenerys did, too, when she was going through um, Mm -hmm. a city that she had conquered but lost. And then it was a whole thing. Um, So it's cool to see when you read those things in stories and you're like, that's just way too wild to be real and then you find out nah this dude actually did do that that happened people lived in a time where that was a thing that was happening this is terrible i have give them the old razzle dazzle stuck in my head but it's the horrible bad person murder version he was um very few things if not a showman uh which i will touch on slightly in my story it seemed like he kind of took pleasure in like catching people off guard and like showing them up they're showing them up he would be kind and like invite you in and be like come to dinner come to this and then like boom all of a sudden you're like being killed and you thought he was this nice guy i can't wait to compare our two stories but i in researching this episode i often wonder how much ptsd was going on for all of these people that manifested as just horror 
and just, oh God, I can't even imagine just day-to-day life, the, the things that could give you PTSD, let alone finding out your aristocratic father went to have dinner with the Prince of Wallachia and is now on a spike outside the city. And you yeah. have like hundreds of other friends in your school that are like, yeah, same bro. Like, can you, <laughs> can you even? <laughs> no. So I struggled really hard with like, how do I write a story this week? What do I write it about? I was like, first of all, I was ranting because I was like, wow, this week I gave myself a full-on book report of the history of Vlad the Impaler and then had to do a full-on story, like creative writing assignment, which when it's a myth doesn't feel quite the same because with myth, it's like, it's the fun story writing and you throw in the history to give context. And this time it was like, literally I gave myself two English assignments this week. So I struggled and I was like, what do I write it as a point of view from? What would be original? What would be different? And um, you can let me know how I did. Did you pick a nail in the... I didn't. No. I picked a mason who's hearing about the gossip about what happened. And I made up a, a, a new impaling story. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> so let's jump into it. The tavern is busy tonight. The small building is crowded with tired, dirty people crushing themselves together at tables and on stools trying to get a drink. A three-person tariff band stands in the corner playing harmoniously together over the din of voices shouting, of pottery clinking and chairs scraping ruthlessly against the floor. This place is usually busy when there's bad weather or good gossip to pass around. Tonight there's both. It's unusually cold tonight, and wind is pounding against the walls of the building. It's a battering ram against the helpless wood. But inside the tavern, it's warm, and not just from the fire that burns behind me in the large fireplace, but from the excitement that comes with interesting news to share. Vlad Draculia, Prince of Wallachia, has struck again. He invited a few of the newly appointed and very outspoken boyars to his home for dinner. These aristocrats were all sons of sons of sons of men who fought their way into power. They were born into wealth and lived easy, privileged lives. Now, I'm a simple mason. I work with stone, day in and day out. But nothing is as unyielding or enduring in its stubbornness as the arrogance and entitlement of these types of men. I'd met one of the men who was called to visit the prince. He came in to commission myself and my apprentice for some work. Nothing too complicated or fancy, a job easily well done by any mason half-skilled in the trade, but he acted as though it were a gift from God himself that we should be graced to shape such stone for this man. He was rude and cruel, and he insulted my apprentice. I hated him immediately. But times are tough. So we took the job. He was insufferable the entire time. I watched him from a distance, because no one ever notices the staff around, and he was just as rude to the gardener, the carpenter, and even his own wife. Worst of all, he would not stop talking about the new Prince of Wallachia. Vlad the Impaler, as he was starting to be called, this man ranted and raved 
to anyone who would listen that Vlad was one of the Ottomans and had no right to rule our lands. He would shout about how unfit he was to lead and how all the rumors of him were just made-up nonsense. He called Vlad weak and insufferable. Not to mention that idiot Boyar argued with me from sunup to sundown over the price of my work and I ended up with half of what I was promised. By the time I finished the job, I'd be happy never to hear Vlad Draculia's name again. Or so I thought. Tonight, it's not such a bad name to hear drop from the lips of other patrons. This man and his two closest friends and allies were called upon to dine with the prince himself. They paraded around like peacocks, announcing their importance at being summoned and acting as though it was their right to finally be noticed by the prince himself. They walked into the halls of the castle, dressed up in their finery, and to their surprise, Vlad III himself greeted them at the entrance to his home. His long black curls hung in ringlets from his head. He had wide eyes, large for his long face with pupils so dark they were nearly black in the candlelight. His nose was thin and long with a slight bump in the middle, and it curved down at the end to hover over a thick, black mustache. A small patch of black hair hid under his lower lip, a singular spot of darkness against the rest of his clean-shaven jaw. He smiled as the men walked in, and he greeted them all warmly as he instructed a servant to escort them along. He led them into the dining room where a lavish meal was being laid out on the table. The four men sat down to eat and talked of small things at first, such as the weather, the crops this season, and the quality of the meat they were enjoying. Only after such pleasantries did Vlad bring up the real reason for the meeting. He reminded the boyars that as the newly appointed prince of Wallachia, he needed to remain in power. He needed to eliminate any threats to his rule. It was imperative that he not be seen as weak or as incompetent. The men readily agreed. Of course, of course, he would need to do whatever must be done to protect his position. As men of wealth and influence themselves, they knew just how he felt. Vlad smiled as he dabbed his face with a cloth, pleased to hear the men agree with his position. So we're in agreement, he replied. I must choose to be a strong and decisive leader. Oh, of course, the men agreed in unison, unaware of the trap into which they had just so easily fallen. The people respect strength. Good, Vlad responded casually. Then I'd like for you to come with me into the front gardens. I have some new decorations there I'd like for you to see. The men followed easily enough, pleased with themselves for convincing such a powerful man that they were on his side. As they walked through the halls of the castle to the gardens outside, they did not know the death march they were on until it was too late. It wasn't until they were outside, surrounded by guards and three large spikes in the ground that they knew they were in danger. Such was the casual charm of the man with whom they just dined. They never even knew they were dining with death itself. They were unaware that the Prince of Wallachia had served them their last meal until it sat heavy in their stomachs at the sight before them. Surrounded by armed guards and standing next to one of the most famously brutal men in the world, they realized that his reputation was one that had been earned not fabricated. Please, gentlemen, Vlad said calmly, motioning towards the spikes. If you would step forward, 
I'd like to see how my new decorations will look once they're complete. And so, Vlad the Impaler added three new names to his list, and I, a humble mason sitting in a warm tavern, heard the story just a few days later. I took a sip of my drink, a small smile playing at the corner of my lips. I cared little for the larger politics of the region. It mattered not to me who was in charge so long as there was food on my plate at the end of the day and money enough for a drink or two now and then. (laughs) But tonight I couldn't help but raise a glass to the man who removed a thorn from my side. To the man who ruled with an iron fist over an unruly lot of insufferable, pompous assholes. Cheers to you, Vlad Draculia, Prince of Wallachia. Ooh, that might be one of my favorites you've done. That was so good. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I wanted to capture the energy that I feel like people have around Vlad now. Um, A lot of people see him as someone who... Well, so in my story, I didn't quite capture the energy because I made him a little bit malicious. But a lot of people now say that they feel he did what he had to do and that it wasn't pure capriciousness. It was when it had to be done. Hmm. So the last thing I want to talk about is some tourism. Bran Castle is a modern-day tourist attraction in Transylvania that is often referred to as Dracula's Castle. But this was never the residence of Vlad the Impaler. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Right? According to Florin Curta, a professor of medieval history and archaeology at the University of Florida, Stoker's Dracula is linked to Transylvania, but the real historic Dracula, Vlad III, never owned anything in Transylvania. Because the castle is in the mountains in this foggy area and it looks spooky, it is what one would expect of Dracula's castle, Curta said. But Vlad III never lived there. He never even stepped foot in there. End quote. So was his castle all sunshine and rainbows, though? No, no, absolutely <laughs> was not. And um, no, not at all. But the castle that is famously Dracula's castle inspired, like, I think it's a, it is a fair tourist attraction to visit if you're interested in the fictional Dracula, because it it did inspire Bram Stoker to write the story of Dracula. It's so spooky. It is in this foggy, mountainous area. But if you're looking to have anything to do with the real Vlad Dracula, literally nothing to do with him. Vlad the Impaler lived in a pink glitter castle on a cloud with My Little Pony prancing around outside. You cannot tell me otherwise. Just add spikes, and then you're... You've nailed it. Oh, right, right, right. Spikes. Right, right, right. Spikes. (laughs) All right, so according to Live Science, it's possible for tourists to visit one castle where Vlad III certainly spent time. At about age 12, Vlad III and his brother Radu were imprisoned in Turkey. In 2014, archaeologists found the likely location of the dungeon, according to Smithsonian Magazine. Tokat Castle is located in northern Turkey. It is an eerie place with secret tunnels and dungeons that is currently under restoration and open to the public. That's cool. I want both. I want to go to both. Right. There's one more thing that I want to do that I specifically put in here because I was like, this is my dream. Undercover Romania offers a six-day Dracula tour that claims our Vlad the Impaler versus Dracula tour will take you on an authentic discovery of the legendary medieval prince 
Vlad the Impaler, whose story inspired the mythical Dracula. This is not the typical Dracula tour with invented vampires, but a real and authentic experience you'll remember for years to come. Our proposal for you is an honest history tour that follows the medieval legacy of Vlad the Impaler with an added twist of history versus fiction. What's true and what's not in the legend of Dracula? Nope, nope, nope. I just had to cover my mouth. You buried the lead, Tracy. That, yep. I want that. <laughs> Yes, it, it, it is so cool. So it is a six-day tour that goes through different cities. Uh, based on my research and my curiosity, this seems to be by far the most thorough Vlad the Impaler tour I could find. It covers pretty much everything every other tourist website claims is like a must-see. Do you think you can go on that tour and not be bedecked in goth clothing? Because I don't think... I think you have to. I think it would feel wrong. I think it would be like uncomfy you know like you need to just like feel the right energy if i took you to the mothman festival would you take me on the dracula tour yes okay <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely so that, that was my my ending bit um like i said the to, to this day many in romania see vlad the impaler as a national hero due to his fight for independence of romanian lands and they view his acts of cruelty as tools used for this reason and not purely out of malice so that, my dear friend, is Vlad the Impaler. And I've stuck a lot of heavy stuff on you. So I'm going to touch on one very fun thing. Ooh, okay, what? It is a recommendation. Because we're talking about vampires. Okay. I really just had to quickly shout out one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, of all time. It is the movie What We Do in the Shadows, ah! which was written and directed by Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement. I've never seen it in its entirety. Oh I caught it once while my roommate was watching it. It is so funny. It's so funny. So my uh, my sister's husband is like this stoic man with the driest sense of humor ever. And when we were on vacation this year... We made him sit down and watch this movie with us, and I cannot tell you the joy that watching this very dry, sarcastic, stoic man, like, giggling next to me. Like, the joy that brought me. So, I have not seen the TV show, uh, um, What We Do in the Shadows. My roommate watched the movie, but usually watches the TV show, so I'm more, un I'm more familiar, pardon me, with the show. And I've never seen the show. That's um, oh, so good. Mostly because I'm scared it's not going to hold up to the movie, but I, like, cannot recommend the movie enough. So for those who don't know what it is, it is a comedy mockumentary-style movie about four vampire roommates, Viago, Deacon, Peter, and Vladislav, who was once known as Vlad the Poker. That's played by Jermaine Clement. It's very funny. <laughs> so they're struggling with the mundanities of modern life in New Zealand and their antagonistic relationship with the local werewolves. It stars Jermaine Clement... Taika Waititi, Johnny Brew, and Stu Rutherford as the character of Stu. So Stu is just a guy who they brought in. He's an IT guy in real life. He's an IT guy that they brought in who thought he was going to be working on some tech stuff for the movie, and then they just put him into the movie as Stu. And he's, like, the most loved character. He didn't know? No. He just got brought in. And as far as I know, as far as the rumors go... Right, right, right. He was just brought in. Uh, but he was, like, not an actor. If you look at his IMDb page, it's like, worked on tech for this, worked on a production for this, worked on tech for this. 
And his other most famous thing is that he co-developed the technology called dynamic light that created the beautiful mm-hmm. slow motion Valkyrie secret mm-hmm. sequence in Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. So Stu from What We Do in the Shadows coded that. So he's like an actual just IT guy and they brought him in and he's just like quiet the whole, he's so funny. Roman is so funny. So if you liked the humor of Thor Ragnarok at all, or if you have seen Letter Kenny and you like that humor, like I, and by some miracle you haven't seen this movie, I promise you have to finish our episode and then go watch it. It's I so funny. I think it's on Hulu. I know that I think the show is on Hulu and I think the movie is also somehow available. The movie is available on Amazon. Okay. Um, I think you have to pay to rent it. Right. But um, I, I think I own it at this point, so, like, We'll make sure really some version of it gets up on our recommendations page for all of you guys, because it's... Yes. So that was my... I had to give a break between my story and yours to talk about a movie so funny that before it even ended, I had already bought a t-shirt with a quote from it and happily wear that shirt all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I've given everyone a brief respite from the grim dark. Now I'm going to hand it back over to Rowan for some extra grim and some extra dark. Yes. My darling listeners, if you thought that Tracy's story was a little rough for you, then consider that because we're about to go darker. Mm -hmm. I kept mine tame. Specifically because I know who Rowan is as a person and she holds back no punches and she really wanted to do this story justice. I shan't. You, I will not. Uh, so here we are. <laughs> Today, I am telling the story of the woman who holds the Guinness Book of World Records title as the most prolific female murderer. She is credited as one of the main influences of Bram Stoker's Dracula tale as well. She is the blood countess whose name comes up right alongside the word torture in the Encyclopedia Britannica none other than Elizabeth Bathory. As a Hungarian noblewoman, her given name would have been pronounced Acheti Batori Erzabet, but I will be referring to her as she is most commonly renowned today for the rest of our story. Yeah, sometimes you gotta do that. Sometimes you gotta call someone Elizabeth or Vladi Daddy. It's just, you know, it's easy for us. It's easy for you. It's mostly easy for us. Right. And also, I owe this woman nothing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So continue. Continue. I'm excited. To quote her famous entry in the Guinness Book, The most prolific female murderer was Elizabeth Bathory, who practiced vampirism on girls and young women. She is alleged to have killed more than 600 virgins in order to drink their blood and bathe in it, ostensibly to preserve her youth. That's just a bit of information to start us off. And now, a story from the point of view of a serial killer. Yay! (laughs) If I have to hear one more person say that I bathed in the blood of virgins, I am going to scream. The average bathtub takes 30 gallons to fill. 
The average woman has just under 1.3 gallons of blood in her sweet, soft body. And let's say, let's say, if I do my job very well and somehow manage to sever the heads of 25 dangling women all at once, they might fill my bath in about one minute. Maybe. Then, I only have about seven minutes of time to actually enjoy myself before the blood begins to coagulate and the whole situation turns into a gelatinous soup. Not to mention, managing 25 corpses really does take a lot of servants, and this is my me time, so I can't have them fussing about while I'm trying to relax. It's a squandering of resources that, frankly, I prefer not to worry about. I do not bathe. I shower. It's much the same process. I choose one beautiful woman from a selection of many lined up before me in my entrance hall. I take particular note of what I'd like to improve that day, say, a girl with especially bountiful hair if I feel mine is losing its luster, or someone with pink petal lips if mine needs some rouge. The rest are shuffled to the dungeon, and whoever is selected is then washed. They must always be washed. Disgusting things. And then hoisted up above my tub. A quick decapitation and my skin is nourished with her unblemished youth. It enrages me that everyone feigns horror when they learn about these acts. I began with servants and peasant girls. No one, no one cares about their dusty little lives. The monarchy, the nobles, are all brought up upon the backs of villagers who will live and die by the pleasure of the rich men they serve. I know this because I loved a village boy once. All his life amounted to was an inconvenience for me and the anger of my husband. (laughs) It took me almost a year of simpering to undo the jealousy he caused. What kindness have we to offer those who, under God, are told to appreciate each and every scrap we deign to throw at them? I will not apologize for performing the acts in my home that men ravage in wars abroad. After all, this is the domain I am granted to rule. These little women, with their innocent happiness, are my enemies and my aspiration. To see them smiling at the needle is no different than my husband staring down a man who flashes his sword. We may only sleep soundly to the screaming subjugation of our inferiors. People tell me that I am possessed by a demon, or forsaken by God. This is not new. It did not come about because I killed a few peasants. They've been saying it since my birth. At times, I am overcome by violent jerking. I fall to the floor and spasm. My mother says I make sounds like a creature is trying to escape from my mouth and that my eyes will roll and search as if I can divine what is not there. I do not know what others see, 
but these moments come upon me with a wash of color. Sometimes the scent of flowers or burning. I feel I am fading away until I am back in my aching, throbbing body. Physicians tell me there is a demon within me, that I am the devil's work or the moon's mistress or some oversexed soul available for snatching. <laughs> well, I've never seen Lucifer or God or anything that tells me that my soul is more available for eternal punishment than anyone else's, and if it's true that I am already condemned to hell, what is to stop me from doing what I please during my time on this earth? It is incredibly painful to live, no matter the instrument of your affliction. A fortnight ago, I had a young woman before me. She was vital. Every facet of her sun-warmed and simply happy in a way that caused a heat to scorch my throat. I could tell just looking at her what she had that I lacked. I've been trying for some time to cure this weakness within me that causes my possessed shaking, that lends me to illness and melancholy. I've catalogued every freckle, hunted through every organ, and tried to carve it out from the space behind a woman's smile, but it's just not there in that mucky, eternal swamp. I cannot find it where pleasure lies, and I cannot find the seat of love itself. Hearts are ugly things that pump metallic stubbornness away from my grasp. This vitality is something elusive. The girl, even her tears were beautiful. The tears of someone who is loved and treasured, not for her wealth or knowledge or work, but for her inherent value as a person who is known in every way one can be known by someone who cares for them. No amount of biting or burning or cutting or maiming or stabbing or crushing or wringing could pull that out of her. It never works. <sighs> I do try so very hard, though. What else am I going to do with my time? I've read so many books in so many languages and not found anything yet that inspires me quite the way that elusive vitality can. Even the ugliest among them has it. When they beg or cry or cower, it's still there. I cannot approximate such beauty even in my happiest of moments. But I do have great skin, don't I? That was so good. You texted me worried that you were going to sound... Like a psychopath? Yeah, that's really a nicer way to phrase it. But I think that that was... 
that was awesome. The way that it's so, such a powerful through line underneath the whole story that it is her own, to me at least, it felt like the way you were framing it as like her own inhumanity is what's making her feel ugly and that it's the humanity of others that is the vitality she can't reach. Maybe I'm reading into it, but that is like what I felt underlying the whole thing. No, Tracy, you get me. You know what I was going for. You you knew my mission. I was thinking about that when you were telling your story, how you told the story from someone who actually could have so easily been a victim of Vlad the Impaler, just a human being that was mm-hmm. in a position of less power, but then benefited from his violence. Yeah. Yes, which is the opposite. Vlad, it seems like, really didn't like he only really went after the powerful or his his active enemies like the ottomans but the everyday person to this day still thinks highly of him which is the exact opposite of the way we think of elizabeth bathory yeah except for those ottoman prisoners of war there's twenty thousand people that probably wouldn't have a good thing to say about him yeah i wouldn't say everyone today thinks well of vlad i mean i would say many people don't some some think that he was a harsh but just ruler. That's all I'll say. Speaking of harsh, but... But harsher. Speaking of harsh <laughs> rulers. <laughs> I gave you a taste of the fictionalized horror, but now we're going to chat about the real history of Elizabeth Bathory. And do not worry, because it is it is just as scary. Born in Transylvania in 1560 to one of the most prominent families in Europe at the time, Elizabeth Bathory had access to all the wealth and education, money, and power could acquire. She spoke Latin, Greek, Slovak, Hungarian, and German. Her parents were first cousins, which was Mm. not uncommon, but left her with some health problems. She was epileptic and experienced particularly violent seizures without the benefit of today's modern medicine. Keep in mind, and you might remember this from my story, that during the Renaissance and through the Enlightenment, explanations for seizures included the phase of the moon, vapors affecting the brain, demonic possession, head injuries and syphilis, something with the motor nerves, and unfortunately, excessive masturbation resulting in the castration and clitoridectomy of some patients. Though her wealth likely insulated her from the harsher side of these beliefs, they no doubt had an effect on her life. Yeah, that is, that is rough. I mean, like, she... Like, she did some pretty bad things, so, like, uh, my sympathy is limited. But for that part of, you know, like, young Elizabeth not knowing what's wrong with her. And I know someone who has seizures and just, even with the benefits of today's modern medicine, the way she describes it is a true living nightmare. Yeah. It's, the time before modern medicine was not great for not ideal. folks no. who rely on it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take today. I like, I like modern medicine. It's done me good. Elizabeth's extended family also brought a lot to the table. To quote History.com, Though she counted many luminaries among her relatives, her family tree also featured some seriously disturbed kin, 
One of her uncles instructed her in Satanism, while her aunt taught her all about sadomasochism. End quote. Yeah, that, that does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> there were also numerous rumors after her death about various cousins or aunts having same-sex relationships. Whether or not this was true, the stories were told, no doubt, to capitalize on what would have been considered a scandal at the time. And we cannot forget a member of the Bathory family, Prince Stephen Bathory, aided Vlad the Impaler in his quest hey. for the Wallachian throne. This is off. <laughs> this is oft used to further link her as the inspiration for Bram Stoker's vampire tale. Is it Bram? Was I saying Bram the whole time incorrectly? You know, I've heard both. I'll, okay. I'll carry the Bram torch, you carry the Bram torch, and one or both of us is going to be and right. And then as a unified force, we'll be correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. Fingers crossed. <laughs> also in line with Bram Bram Stoker's vampire tale, <laughs> some say that uh, her supposed bathing in blood giving her youth is where the idea that Dracula drinking blood, making him appear younger, came from. Mm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. There are numerous stories of Elizabeth witnessing horrible acts of violence as a child. It's said that as a young girl, she laughed as a thief was sewn into the body of a horse. The servants around her were often severely beaten, though it's difficult to know if her family was particularly bad for the time or if the time was particularly bad for everyone. At the age of 10, yes, 10, she was renowned for her beauty and engaged to Ferenc Nadasti, a 15-year-old Hungarian count. There's a rumor. I mean, it's not great. It's not great. But at least he wasn't like a 45-year-old Hungarian count, you know? Here's the thing. People were very young. Women were especially young when they were engaged during this time. It's in history. Well, the thing sake, is, is they, were, they were engaged, but they typically weren't married until they were older. So you could have someone who was engaged at like seven. But I they have don't this get information for you, my, Aha, my girl. Okay, cool. Yes. It's more, I more emphasize this as a point to say she got started on being a violent little wretch very early in life. All right. So there's no point where we're like, she was just a sweet baby and then something happened. It's like, no, she was kind of always, always who she was, you know? Well, her parents started showing her horrible things. So I would bet that at a certain age, it was starting to be indoctrinated. Probably baby yeah. Elizabeth was a baby. <laughs> anyway. All right. So, all right. Okay. Carry on. There's a rumor that Elizabeth became pregnant in her early teens after an affair with a peasant boy. Supposedly, she secreted the child away, but Ferenc found out, had the boy castrated, and thrown to a pack of wild dogs. But no matter, on May 8th, 1574, at the age of 14, Elizabeth married her torture-loving betrothed. Tracy. Oh, man, that's just <laughs> not great. It's not great. I don't love that. 
Tracy, real quick, guess how many guests were in attendance at her wedding, just for fun. Oh, God. Okay, I'm going to be so bad at this because I'm terrible. All right. I'm guessing it was extravagant. Right. Um, and today, a typical wedding is like 100, 150, so I'm going to go with like 300 people. It was a three-day party that four and a half thousand people attended. Oh, my God. I was never going to be close. I was never even going to be near the mark. No. <laughs> four thousand? Four and a half thousand. How do you feed that many people? That's so much food. It's so much food. It's so many people. That is, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm going to have a hot take. Too many people. <laughs> Too many. So at the height of this party, Elizabeth's new husband gave her Castle Czeszczytsa in Hungary, or what is now part of Slovakia. This is where young Elizabeth stayed and learned to be one of the most powerful people in that corner of the world while her husband fought against the Ottomans. He earned the nickname the Black Knight of Hungary through his brutality on the battlefield, making him the perfect spouse for the Blood Countess. When the Turks invaded Hungary in 1591, the war drew on for so long that it earned the title the Long War. It forced Hungary into incredible poverty while Elizabeth received beautiful riches from her husband in the Ottoman Empire. They amassed so much wealth that they lent money to the Hungarian Habsburg Empire to keep it running. Remember that detail. Okay. Also, the Habsburgs are just really, really funny the further down they go. They just, they're just, they rule everything and they're so intermarried. It is. There's, there's, a, there's a Habsburg look. So just Google the Habsburg look at some point. It's a lot of chin, a lot of teeth. It's just a, it's a look. <laughs> <laughs> when the Turks attacked the many lands she held, Elizabeth kept them at bay. When local peasants needed shelter, she provided it. All was well in the beautiful, spooky world of the Bathory-Nadasti estates. Until it wasn't. When she and Ferenc were finally able to spend time together, it said they bonded over a love of violence. He, teaching her ways to torture young servant girls, and she, getting excited about his gifts, like a clawed glove that she could use to scratch the young woman's faces. Mm, I mean, that's on my Amazon wish list, so. <laughs> Probably exists somewhere on the internet. Our murderess would quickly acquire a second teacher, a woman by the name of Anna Davoya. Story goes that she taught the Countess new ways to kill young women because, as villagers said, Davoya was a witch. There is a fair amount of witch accusations in this story, so I will just say this. Anytime a woman commits a crime, in this history, which is often, it's safe to assume that someone is attributing it to witchcraft. Yeah, that's fair. A generally fair assumption for a lot of history. Oh, 10,000%. Mm -hmm. Here's where we're going to pause 
and talk about the crimes and tortures she was said to have inflicted throughout her years. The following are pulled directly from the Rejected Princesses website and are only some of the monstrosities people have accused her of throughout the centuries. She kept her servants chained up every night so tight their hands turned blue and spurted blood. She beat them to the point where there was so much blood on the walls and beds that they had to use ashes and cinders to soak it up. She strangled a servant to death with a silk scarf. That was known as the Turkish way. No doubt called this because of the war between the Hungarians and the Turks. She burned her servants with metal sticks, red-hot keys, and coins, ironed the soles of their feet, and stuck burning hot rods into their vaginas. She would match the torture to the crime, quote-unquote. For example, stabbing needles into the fingers or under the nails of a servant who missed a stitch while mending. Oh, no, 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 no! Oh my god! She stabbed them, pricked them in their mouths and fingernails with needles, and cut their hands, lips, and noses with scissors. She used needles, knives, candles, and her own teeth to lacerate servants' genitals. She stitched their lips and tongues together. She made servants sit on stinging nettles, then bathe with said stinging nettles. During this bath, She'd push the nettles into their shoulders and breasts, though some say that this was a folk remedy at the time. I don't know. She had them stand in tubs of ice water up to their necks outside until they died. She smeared a naked girl with honey and left her outside to be bitten by ants, wasps, bees, and flies. She kept them from eating for a week at a time and, if they got thirsty, made them drink their own urine. She forced them to cook and eat their own flesh, usually from the buttocks, or make sausages and serve it to guests. That's like my, that's like my, you know how everyone has like that thing that really gets them? That's mine. Mm Mm-mm. She heated up a cake to red-hot temperatures and made a servant eat it. She stuffed five servants' corpses underneath a bed and continued to feed them as if they were alive. She buried them in gardens, grain pits, orchards, and occasionally cemeteries, sometimes with rites, sometimes without. So how much of that do you know is like, like are all of those, these definitely happened or, because I've heard so many fluctuating rumors of like her infamy has been just extremely overinflated over the centuries and then I've heard well no she actually was really terrible and it's, I've, I've had a hard time over the years trying to figure out how much of these how many of these stories are true or All how right. much of this is the truth buckle up buttercup because I'm going to give you some more information and then we will speculate okay alright please no more cannibalism any other mentions of cannibalism will only come in the vampiric form Deal. Okay. Why is that okay? Why am I okay with that? Wow, don't open that door, Trace, huh? Nope, 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 nope. (laughs) Sparkle glitter vampires. Local priests started taking note of an incredible number of servant girls dying under Elizabeth's watch. 
as they were asked to perform funeral rites. The Countess tried to explain it away with cholera, but at the time it really didn't matter much what she said. Any peasant wishing to make a complaint against Elizabeth would have to bring it to Ference and Elizabeth themselves, an illegal act that could likely result in a death sentence or imprisonment. There are even reports that some locals sold their children to the Bathories for money, possibly knowing what would become of them. This meant that the sadistic young woman had a virtual murder playground of victims whose lives were not considered valuable by nobility. After one such funeral for a servant girl, a priest is quoted as having said, Your grace should not have acted so, because it offends the Lord, and we will be punished if we do not complain to you and criticize your grace. And in order to confirm my words are true, we need only exhume the body, and you will find that the marks identify the way in which the death occurred. Elizabeth stormed from the room, raging about the power of her family, while her husband presumably stayed behind to cover the situation up. The couple had five children before Ference became ill with a condition in 1601 that led to paralysis of the legs and his eventual death. We still don't know what he had at the time, Hmm. but he passed three years later, leaving Elizabeth as a 44-year-old widow. She became increasingly violent as she managed the vast estate alone. You also got to wonder about what those children's upbringings look like. Is there any history on that? Is there any documentation of those kids? There's not a ton of detail about them as children, but there will be brief mention of them as adults. So they lived. Hey, they made it. (laughs) The Biographics channel on YouTube, which we love, by the way, says of this period, quote, It appears that she now transformed her penchant for sadism from a hobby to a full-time preoccupation. As constantly replenishing your staff is difficult and local peasants are needed for the economy to function, Elizabeth turned to the young women of the surrounding villages, tossing their bodies over the walls to feed to wild wolves after she'd had her fill. Some of the staff actually participated in the murders and acquisition of young women. A few nobles are said to have lured the female victims. Women themselves, actually noteworthy. But Elizabeth's full-time staff of murderers consisted of Anna Davoya, Iona Joe, who was her children's nurse, and two other women named Catalin and Dorka, and one very young teenage boy named Fitzko. By 1609, Elizabeth's confidant and fellow murderess, Devoya, died of a stroke. Deaths were mounting, and the Bathory widow's children had all married and moved away. To solve her loneliness, financial woes, and lack of peasant victims... Bathory opened up a finishing school for young noble women. Who would send their kid there? How do people not know? 
Do they think it's because I can't like they're nobles? How? How? How do you not know? I don't know. I mean, like I I'm shocked. Shocked that that worked. Also, some stories say that her castle was even spooky at the time. Hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. But, you know, women intrinsically had less value. So maybe it was a go get finished but stay out of my space. I guess it's just there. It couldn't have been the only finishing school, you know? Right. And she was one of the most powerful women in that portion of the world. Yeah, I could see it as like, she's so powerful. She's never hurt nobles. It'll, it's worth the risk. It's, I still think it's a stupid move. It is interesting to think about, let's say people don't know about all the murders, but they do know she's harsh to servants. Well, how harsh is everyone else to servants? Right. Because at the time, right. you know, when she was a child, she saw a thief being sewn into a horse. That that was something that was available for her to see. Mm-hmm. Vlad the Impaler was in existence. You know, this was the world. Yeah. This is about almost like a hundred, hundred and thirty years after Vlad the Impaler. Right. In the same area of the world. Exactly. And so that's, that's kind of, it's kind of a picture of what we're looking at, right? Some say that she began hunting nobles as a form of witchcraft designed to change her fortunes. But it's more likely a simple scheme to get paid to commit torturous crimes. The plan reeked of desperation and a disconnect from reality, and it quickly led to the end of her killing spree. By 1610, the noble families took the news of their missing and murdered daughters to King Matthias II of Hungary, and he intervened. The king sent Gigori Thurzo to investigate the crime, and here's where things get excitingly political. Why did the king finally intervene? It was not only to protect the children of his noble subjects. Here's a long quote from a great piece in the History Collection. Quote, For years, Ferenc Nadasti had been lending money to the Hungarian crown, and the crown had made no effort to pay the debt back. Elizabeth, as a widow, had made herself extremely unpopular with her frequent trips to court to press for repayment. Not only that, he would be one step closer to diminishing the powerful Bathory clan. When not fighting the Turks, the Kingdom of Hungary was busy fighting itself. The Thirty Years' War between Catholics and Protestants loomed, as the Catholic crown began to attempt to erode the rights of its Protestant subjects before they could move to restrict its power. Most nobles were Catholic. However, the Bathory and Adasti were Protestant. Worse yet, Elizabeth's cousin, Gabor Bathory, the Prince of Transylvania, had his eye on expanding his territory by uniting Transylvania and Royal Hungary under his rule. He and Elizabeth were known to correspond, and it seemed she had been financing him, as well as pledging troops to his cause, so long as he came to her aid as required. If Matthias could remove her as a player, Gabor's plan would be confounded. 
end quote. So Thurzo goes to investigate and receives report after horrifying report about the screaming from the castle, the growing cemetery, blood drenching the floors. But he could not get a hold of an actual witness to Bathory committing the crimes herself. That, and he was a close friend of Ferenc, who'd asked Thurzo to look after his wife when he passed, And Thurzo was a Protestant himself, which meant he was incredibly aware of the fact that putting Elizabeth Bathory on trial meant establishing a precedent. So he was probably like the worst person the king could have sent for this job. Like just a ton of conflict there. Yeah, he was very trusted by the king, but I'm still shocked. Maybe he didn't know he was a Protestant. Yeah, or or just didn't know about the close ties or didn't care. Like, I don't even know. I can't even speculate. But man, that guy had a conflict of interest. Really? An act of parliament would have been required to bring a noble to trial. And it was Thurzo's belief that that would encourage the monarchy to do it again anytime a noble became inconvenient. With the religious battle of the country just around the corner... He wanted to both preserve his appearance as being on the side of the king and make sure that the king could not make his life difficult for being a Protestant. Though Elizabeth herself wanted to go to trial, believing she could sway people, Thurzo brokered a deal to fulfill his obligation to Ferenc, the king, and most importantly, to himself. To stop the embarrassment of a trial, the Bathory family would forgive the king's debts. The king would forgo a trial because any crime in the nobility would reflect poorly on the crown, and Thurzo would stay on everyone's good side. Stories about the final nail in the coffin differ depending on the source. (laughs) Thank you. The countess did bequeath all of her wealth to her children in life so that nothing could be confiscated after the trial. This protected the family's legacy, but it was also likely a move to satisfy her sons-in-law, who were scheming with Thurzo to have Elizabeth put away so that they could take control of her estate. Then, some say that she tried to poison Thurzo and maybe even the king with a cake when they came to visit her, that's a trip that may or may not have happened. The two men apparently sensed it immediately and escaped with their lives. When Mm. Thurzo went back to confront the Countess, they saw she and a servant leave the body of a young woman right at the door to the home, using it as part of an incantation to protect themselves because they were witches. I mean, they were something that rhymed with witches, but I don't think they were specifically witches. Yeah, that portion of the story sounds like a fabrication to me because it makes them sound like very cunning heroes. And Well, and also it sounds like it was a patriarchy. Like, you know, you can't have a powerful woman. She has to be aided by Satan. She must be put down, that whole thing. Right. Regardless, when Elizabeth was finally captured and thrown into her own dungeon, 
she tried to blame everything on the very same servants she'd enlisted to help with her crimes. In 1611, her accomplices faced a trial that looked shockingly similar to what we have going on today. Escaped victims and other witnesses testified, exhumed bodies were examined, and Thurzo's ample evidence was put to good use. In total, 306 people testified against the Blood Countess. Her band of murderous helpers incriminated themselves and were put to death. Either due to his gender or age, Fitzgo was killed without torture, while the women had their fingers torn out by tongs before they were put to death. Each body was burned. Catalin was spared from death and imprisoned for life, as she was not only beaten herself during her time at the castle, but she apparently made efforts to sneak food to Elizabeth's victims. Here I would like to pause. The torture of ripping out fingers with tongs was a part of the punishment for people who tortured other people. I am desperate to know if this was part of a larger culture or if everyone sat down and went, you torture people, so now we're devising torture for you. I suspect it was the former, influenced I, by I the latter. I suspect it was the former, uh, but I'd rather not think about it at all. <laughs> Bathory was imprisoned in her own castle. Some say, nice. though it is unlikely... She was kept in the very same dungeons she used to torture the young women she captured. But probably Thurzo's orders were carried out and she was sealed into a room in the castle with only a small space to get food and items in and out. Honestly, that's probably better. She probably would have kind of liked being in her dungeons. Like, I can't imagine she hated it there. You know? Being bricked into a room is pretty. That's, that's pretty. I, th I think that's worse for her. I can't stop wondering about how long a person can go without getting any vitamin D. I'm going to assume there were no windows. Maybe there were windows. Eh, I don't know. Truly. I don't know. I don't know either. Though priests, Thurzo, and a few others were permitted to visit her, she was known to be wrathful and crazed at the end of her life. Until her last breath, she blamed her own servants for the series of murders who she claimed to be desperately afraid of. While she cursed him from her cell, Gigori Thurzo said this to Bathory. You are in the last months of your life. You do not deserve to breathe the air on the earth or see the light of the Lord you shall disappear from this world and shall never reappear in it again. As the shadows envelope you, may you find time to repent your bestial life. The final count of victims ascribed to her ranges anywhere from 80 to 650. Of course, everyone likes the much larger number because it's the most shocking option. Historycollection.com says, The figure of 650 deaths on which the Countess's reputation as a mass murderer was based came from a servant girl known simply as Susanna. It is unlikely Susanna was literate. 
Somehow, however, she knew of a ledger kept by the official Jakob Shilvasi, which apparently recorded the names of every one of the Countess's victims. In his testimony, although Shilvasi admitted he had seen the Countess torture some of her victims, he never mentioned any such ledger, nor was one ever found and presented to the court as evidence. This will give you some clue into the circus surrounding the trial. Some testimonies were bought, others were tortured out, and the truth, though brutal, was likely less sensational than the court reports explain. I often wonder if this young servant woman who was illiterate even had a frame of reference for the number 650. I'm not kidding. No, I know that's a that's a great thought to have. It's um if you're so poor because t- truly the area surrounding her castle was facing so much poverty. So mm-hmm. much poverty that people were willing to sell their children to a woman right. who was known for murder. Right. The idea of 650 of anything. Well, on top of that, I've, I've watched this really great documentary about, like, the history of math, which sounds boring, but is amazing. And just, it, it is shocking to realize how complicated so many concepts that we take for granted are, have been to come up with throughout history. I mean, even just the concept of the idea of zero took thousands of years to come about. So it's not shocking for someone to just not be able to conceptualize 650. I have a hard time conceptualizing numbers in reality, and I'm a college-educated person. Exactly. And it would not surprise me if someone in her situation was paid to say something like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I will say this. The stories of her famous bloodbaths were 100% false. It's not up for debate. They were not invented until about a hundred years after her death, when a Jesuit scholar made a specific trip around the area to learn about the Blood Countess. Villagers recounted the story of this gory practice, though no actual evidence pointed to her having any particular interest in blood, except for it being a byproduct of murder. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I had heard that the stories of bathing in blood were false and without digging any further was like, oh, so she just wasn't as bad as everyone says. Um, So I was wrong. She definitely was horrible, but not so much in the loving blood way as much as the sadistic killer way. I chose to tell the story about the blood because there is a big difference between fictional vampire Elizabeth Bathory and real life murderess Elizabeth Bathory Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know bathing in blood is a great story moment there's a reason they did I love that you went from from tub to shower I get why you said you had to do some absolutely buck wild googling this week oh my assigned FBI worker is probably concerned (laughs) for me my wildest google search was that I was trying to figure out what the hair under your lip is called. A soul patch. And it turns out it's, it's it's called a soul patch, but I couldn't describe Vlad the Impaler as having a soul patch. No, you could not. <laughs> no, that would have been weird. In the context of the story, it would have been weird. But he, just so you know, Vlad the Impaler has a soul patch. <laughs> I, it's, it's a, it's a 
crazy world you and I live in with our book reports of murder. Mm -hmm. I, I will give one last fun tidbit. Bathory was initially buried in the cemetery of Castle Chashtitsa after complaints from the locals. Her body was exhumed because, frankly, that was a really rude thing to do. And it was said to have been moved to the Bathory crypt. When the crypt was opened in 1995, her body was in there. (laughs) So they don't know where her body actually is. Nope. Amazing. Same with Vlad. I choose to believe it's kind of a Vlad the Impaler situation and someone exhumed it while it was in that cemetery that it frankly should not have been in. And then her family was like, oh, we're just going to move it to cover up the fact that it was probably defiled. Mm, mm -hmm. That's my assumption. And I do not think this woman killed 650 young women because, you know, I'm doing the math. It wasn't that long a period. Let's say you only kill one person on weekdays and you take weekends off. And then some days you're like, I killed five people. And then other days you're like, I'm too tired. But it's still too many. Did you do the math? Like, did you do like six? Because like how many years? I mean, it would have been it would have been like 30 years. I think it's too many because I, th- I think it's too many for a few reasons. I'm going to do math real quick. Hold on. One, I'm going to say it was 30 years. I'm going to say it was 650 people in 30 years. Why are we choosing 30? Well, when did she start? We all don't of this? actually know the official date that she started murdering. Let's say it was when she got married at 14. Let's just pick a date. Okay, let's say, let's give it a couple years. Let's say it started when the Turks invaded Hungary in 1591. Let's say that. So then how many years does that give me? That gives you until 1609, let's say. I already forgot what the first number was. 1591. It's not that long. It's 18 years. Yeah, I know, dude. All right, so 650 divided by 18. But she killed... She died at 54. Her children were old enough to have been married by the time she left and finished this. I'm going to go 35. I'm just going to pick 35. Let's just do... But listen, you can't even quantify it because after her husband died when she was 44, she got more murdery. So in the first few years, you could say maybe she only killed five women, which is still too many women. But then later, she went full... Like... Right. Here's the thing. Let's say she was killing for 35 years straight and there were 650 women. That's 18.5 women per year. Which is a lot. Actually, it's eighteen point six if we round up. That's my okay. We're not killing point five about of one, one and a half woman. women a month. <laughs> to be clear, I am half dead, but no one half killed me. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, I think the number's outrageous. Like, I do not think she killed that many people because I don't think there were six hundred and fifty women around that area. Thank, to be killed, okay, frankly. that's my point. She had to. Right. Not even that she couldn't stab. 650 women or what have you it's mm-hmm. to acquire 650 women during I mean, in a, that in a time village that small i think 80 is a number that is staggering or 60 or whatever it was and yes the nobility didn't value the peasants but the nobility needed the peasants for their economy to function so when she branched mm-hmm. out to other villages even if they were in her control people were going to say hell hell no my dude i need these people to do all the work that yeah. i won't do Which is not to say that she wasn't a deeply bad person. That's not my point. My point is that 
I think she was being awful and terrible, probably because she was inbred, probably because bad things happened to her as a child, probably because of any number of reasons. She decided to be Mm -hmm. a murderer. And then the king got prince king king. Then the king got a hold of it and said, this is my moment to make this woman look bad, take away all her power and secure my throne from her cousin. Also, I'm Catholic and she's Protestant. Bye-bye. And he owed them so much money. Oh, no, I mean, it completely makes sense from his perspective. It's it's interesting how her infamy, infamy and legacy has grown over the years. I also do not doubt that she was sadistic. Mm-hmm. And she clearly targeted young women on purpose. But some of these tortures, I'm not ruling out that she did them entirely. I'm just saying there are moments that you go, okay, was this sensationalized? Are mm-hmm. we are we saying this just to make her look extra terrible? Because there's a, a lot of descriptions of her biting off the flesh of young women. But there's... Which just goes too closely to the loving blood thing. Exactly. And I think it was, yeah. And I 100% believe the tortures of her punishing mistakes. The idea that she would stick a, a needle under your finger because you messed up sewing. 100% believe that. It's when it gets that more sensational that I, I agree with you that I'm a little bit like, well, I just don't. I think that has a chance of being hypocritical. Is that the right word? Uh, it feels good. It, that word feels good. I also... Are you Googling it? No. <laughs> I'm so lost in my own thoughts, I can't help you to find this word right now. Um, it's not even hypocritical. It's apocryphal. We're learning. We're growing. <laughs> a story or a statement of doubtful authenticity, although widely circulated as being true. Oxford languages. I mixed up, I mixed up hypo- hypocrisy and apocryphy. And created a new word. Hypocryphal. But I do think it was apocryphal. If you put it on a t-shirt, it becomes true. Okay. The other part of the story that I do not doubt the entire truth of, but doubt some of, are that the rumors that her whole extended family were teaching this baby Satanism and sadomasochism, sure, they could have been like that, but... They were, again, one of the most powerful families in that theater of the world at the time. Of course, people are going to make it seem as if they are horrible villains when the opportunity arises. Agreed. Why am I defending Elizabeth Bathory? Who's to say? She was a horrible woman. Love her story. Love it. Yes, and we did it. We got through our vampire episode, our real-life vampire episode. That all come from the same... Really focused on that Transylvania area. (laughs) That's true. That that isn't... Those aren't the only ancient vampire stories either. No, we just... We knew... We we each knew. Like, Rowan, I I wanted her to cover Elizabeth Bathory because I know she's always been fascinated by her. And I knew I had to cover cover Vlad the Impaler. It's true. So. You actually came up with the idea for this episode and then bequeathed Elizabeth Bathory upon me. And I felt I felt so loved because I I, <laughs> I do have a lot of feelings about this woman. <laughs> we did the heavy hitters, darling. 
We did. We actually did the heavy hitters. We didn't shy away from them. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back. I have a welcome back present for you. <gasps> you do? I pulled a five-star review for you to read. Yay! Well, I get to read it. We do five-star reviews on this podcast because, A, it makes us feel great. Artists powered by compliments and caffeine. But we also do it to encourage everyone to please, 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 please take the time to give positive reviews to anyone on the internet whose work you like. It makes a huge difference to artists, merchants, businesses, what have you. It makes it so much easier for new folks to find them. And again, it makes us all feel really good. So. Seconded. Seconded everything. Okay, Tracy, do you got it? Yes. Okay. From M. Keenan 20. Fun listening. This was very easy to get into. Rowan and Tracy do a great job prefacing each episode and explaining their findings. The episodes are easy to listen to because Tracy and Rowan help break down and explain the myths and legends and tales so that they are easy to understand and think about. Definitely worth a listen. Thank you. Oh my God. Rowan, did you know that you broke down tales so they're easy to listen to? Oh my gosh. Tracy, did you know that myths and legends and tales? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just broke my microphone with that laugh. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I think I'm ready to okay. talk about something good. All right, Tracy, you deserve it this week. So, Tracy, tell me something good. All right. So as I said at the top of the show, I've had an interesting last week or so, Um, and yesterday a few friends of mine and I went to a nearby trail and just went on a really calm nature walk, Um, and it was amazing, and a couple of us, including Casey, snuck off the uh, end of one trail to find the mysterious witch's hut that is supposedly (gasps) along the trail. Were you I thought you were walking? No, you don't know this trail. Um, I totally know what you're thinking of, but it's a different trail. Okay. And it was just lovely. It was my first time, like, really just going out and enjoying nature. And, like, we all socially distanced and wore masks. But it was just go enjoy nature, you guys. It's just take a nice walk. Look for a witch's hut. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there are enough local witch's huts in our hometown that... I thought it was one, and you said, no, it's a different witch hut. Yes, that's what that's called growing up on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's I, growing up in... In, uh, in the woods. In the woods on the East Coast, right there. I love that. Ah, oh, I love that Because were you, you thinking of the Valley Forge area? Oh, you know I was. You yeah, know the totally. exact witch hut that I was thinking of. Yeah, this is totally, totally a different area. And and there wasn't anything like we didn't we didn't find anything, but it was a beautiful, beautiful day. A, just a lovely walk, seeing all my friends in person, seeing the leaves change. Have they the started change of changing? Here. Yeah, it's beautiful. Could you send me a picture? I will. I'll Please. send a picture. Okay. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you were out and about and everyone was giving you socially distant love yes emily even brought me an extra safe mask to wear to make sure that i was okay for our walk gosh your friends you have they're insane (laughs) your friends make all other human beings look bad frankly 
I, I don't deserve them. Um, and I'm very grateful. So anyway, I love my mm. friends. I love doing calm nature walks. But I would like to hear if you, Rowan, could tell me something good. My something good this week also involves my friends. Some listeners may know, Tracy, I know you know, I have my two closest friends out here, Sage and Kaylee. We call ourselves the Coven. Mm-hmm. It is how we are identified. The internet knows that we are the coven. It's quite funny. So we got the coven together, socially distant style, and had an outside picnic. And we looked through all of the propositions and measures on the ballot for our area. Mm. Because, well, voters, you all know that Sometimes they will try to word these things so that folks will think they're voting for one thing and then buried Mm -hmm. way down. That ain't it. So we went through the entire thing, all of the candidates. We just pulled as much research as we all could with our three brains and puzzled it out together so that we all could turn in our ballots super early. And it is just so relieving to know that my ballot is on its way in to get counted and it is so relieving to have had three other human beings to talk about these important local but complicated things with Mm -hmm. because it's just it's just so important to vote it is just so important to vote this year and November 3rd is the last day for you to vote not the first day yes absolutely please please vote if you are in pennsylvania i just want you to be aware if you're voting by mail there is a secrecy envelope you need to put your ballot inside of and then put that inside another envelope if you're mailing it but check your local area there are a ton of drop-off locations many of them being libraries so that's where my drop-off location is mine was Um, too Yeah. So just check your state's requirements to be extra safe. Because like I said, in Pennsylvania, if you don't do that secrecy envelope, they won't count your vote. Don't forget to sign it. Just triple double check it. If you do it wrong, guys, you can get a new ballot. And podcasts, talking about podcasts, Pod Save America has every bit of information you could ever possibly want about voting available on their website. Yes, they're amazing. They're amazing, and it, their website is extremely helpful. So, vote. Tell vote, your friends to vote. VoteSaveAmerica.com. That is their their voting website. Tell everyone you know to vote. Make it cool to vote. Shame people who think they're not going to vote. Like this is where oh, we're absolutely. at, guys. <laughs> yeah, this is where we're at. Absolutely. I honestly don't know anyone who like who isn't voting. I there's someone in my life I know who hasn't voted in like 30 years who re-registered and is voting this year. I can't think of a single person who who I know know that is that would not vote, that would miss it. And I know a lot of people who have residences in multiple states, so they had to make sure they could get all of their stuff super early. It's complicated, but you mm-hmm. got to do it. You got to do it. Anyway, that's my soapbox. Tracy, I missed you so much. I missed you too. I'm so happy to be back. I loved doing this very, very gross episode with you. It was lovely. This was the most fun episode to <laughs> I've honestly been looking forward to this all week. It's been, it was so good. 
So. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Last episode before Halloween. This is this is the one. So we got to say this it. is the one. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Get your candy. My neighborhood is doing um, they're not doing like a socially distant trick or treat. I know some places are doing it where you put a table outside your house and you put the candy there. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually heard someone is going to put candy little like tiny bags of candy on spikes all across their front yards that you like go and pick up pick up the little isn't that so clever my neighborhood is doing it where you if you have your front light on then you're comfortable so I'm just gonna incorporate a mask into my costume and I got it's my first year in this house and I know there's a ton of kids in the neighborhood so I probably went way overboard with candy but the last thing I want is to like run out so your neighborhood is so wonderful we have decorations. We have um, we have spider webs on our front bushes. We've got lights along the walkway. And we've got little stakes in the ground that say like pumpkin patch and ghoulish garden and all of that. Do you have enough candy that you're going to be like the legendary house, like the one that all the kids are gonna? I don't remember? know. See, the thing is, I'm so I I bought three bags. Okay. I have absolutely but no frame of reference. Let's that's talk enough. about because this, though. Did you get, like, the good, high-quality candy, or did you get, like, the crappy candy? <laughs> no, I got the good stuff. I got the stuff that I want to eat if I have any left over. Okay, okay, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I got I got one bag of, like, all my favorites of, like, the sugary, like, Sour Patch Kids and stuff like that, and then one bag of, like, all my favorites of, like, Kit Kats and Hershey's chocolate and all that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No one trick-or-treats in my area, and I am checking you as if I am such an expert. I, here's the thing. I live in a townhouse community. So there's my neighborhood, but then there's like five other neighborhoods people can walk to easily. Okay. So I grew up in a town. Well, I lived in a townhouse community when I was very, very little. I do remember trick-or-treating in it. And yes, when you live in a townhouse community and you're a kid, you hit up all the cul-de-sacs. It's, it's for real, for real. I know. I'm worried three bags isn't enough. It's I don't know. But the kids will remember where the full-size candy bars are. I'm not getting I can't afford that this year, bud. Sorry, kids. No, I mean, hey, (laughs) listen, my goal in life is to be wealthy enough that I, like, make it rain full-size candy bars. I know. I don't want to be that house that's like, you can pick one, but I think I'm going to have to be. Normally, I'm the Mm -hmm. house that's like, actually, so all the years past, I've lived in an apartment that has a little, um, like a, a little table outside of everyone's door. It's like a little stand. Mm-hmm. And so I used to go other places for Halloween and would leave a bowl of candy out. Mm-hmm. And every single year, there was a bunch of candy left when I came back. Like, <laughs> clearly it had been taken, but the kids were so respectful in that apartment complex Aww. that I would leave it out usually for three or four days and just say, like, please keep taking candy. Ooh, um, I love that. It was fun. And at that, at that apartment, I did end up doing full-size candy bars because I knew there weren't that many. That like, was, was a, a very adult apartment building. Yeah. And it, it was a lot of adults with, like, babies mm-hmm. and a couple of teens and a couple of kids. But now I think I have, like, I, I might just get a fourth bag just to be safe. Frankly, though, if you have a baby, you deserve a full-size candy bar. I know. It was so funny. One of the other um, apartments on my way out of that building also did the leave the bowl out with full-size candy bars. And I, sw- I swear, me and that person just kept, like, stealing from each other I that love whole that. week. Like, I kept walking by and, like, taking a Three Musketeers, and I would come back, and they had, like, taken a Snickers. That's so cute. <laughs> I think it was just the two of us who were, like, swapping each other's. So I have an important proposition to make. Okay. So COVID, 
took away a lot of the Halloween fun that we love. It's fine. We're adapting, you know. Health is way more important. However, I vote making the winter holiday season full-on Nightmare Before Christmas vibes. Like, it can be winter holiday, but it also has to be Jack Skellington trying to do that winter holiday Halloween style. (laughs) Love it. Absolutely. Sold. Okay, we're doing it. It's okay. Clock it, put it on your calendars. It is Halloween winter holidays this year. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come up with a clever name. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll we'll We'll, work on it. it. We'll take our time. We'll workshop it. But for now, I want to say to everyone, thank you so much for listening. (laughs) And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.